0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by
1: visiting Fetzer.org. In life, in families, we shine a light on the past to live more abundantly now. Today's show is a conversational exploration of that as a public adventure. Annette Gordon-Reed is the historian who introduced the world to Sally Hemings and the children she had with Thomas Jefferson, and so realigned a primary chapter of the American story with the deeper, more complicated truth.
0: He was a multifaceted, as we all are, Yeah, incredibly complicated, but somebody who existed at the forefront of his society. Studying him is a study of America in many, many ways, because so many of the paradoxes, so many of the dilemmas
1: that exist in his life are in the country. Painter Titus Gafara created iconic images after Ferguson. He collapses timelines on canvas.
2: It became very clear to me that if I wanted to know that history, I was going to have to seek it out on my own. I had to sort of manipulate what I had and work with what I had to create a narrative that I didn't see or hear.
1: Is that when you started painting? When you...
2: I think people would say that's when the work got political.
1: Yeah.
2: I say that's when the work got personal.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being at the 2017 Citizen University National Conference in Seattle. I love the title for this gathering reckoning and repair. And right now, there are questions that we are all asking. There's, you know, how did we get here? What just happened? And most importantly, how shall we live? How do we live forward? How do we live forward together? This is reckoning we've put off and put off and put off. And in this room of civic reflection and social courage, I want to pull back the lens to the last 20 months and the last 20 years and the last 20 decades. And I can't imagine a better, a more exquisite pair of conversation partners to do that than Annette Gordon reed a citizen historian, and Titus Kafar, who is a citizen artist. I just want to begin with starting with um, hearing a little bit from each of you about the roots in your life, um, in your formation, um, of your ability to see and hold complexity in history in yourself and to to hold it before the rest of us and, and that you know and you grew up in East Texas and you've said that very early in your life um, as a young girl, you became fascinated with history and in particular with the paradox of this figure of Jefferson and I wonder you know what in the background of your childhood encouraged that That curiosity and that clarity in you.
0: Well, I, as you said, grew up in East Texas, and I integrated the school district. I was the first black child to go to the white school in our school district, and I was um, in first grade, and I was introduced to the idea that politics mattered, that race was a thing, and that we had a history, that this came from someplace. And I, you know, just from being in this situation where I had to crack a code, crack a social convention, um, gave me a sort of insight, made me start to think about how we got here. Mm -hmm.
1: And it's interesting in, in the way you talk about discovering Jefferson, for example, even then, and later on, even after you had written the book about him and and Sally Hemings and that whole story, um, that you continued to find him, what did you say, a magnificent and horrifying figure, I mean, all at the same time.
0: Well, yes, he was a multifaceted, as we all are, Yeah, incredibly complicated, but somebody who existed at the forefront of his society. Studying him is a study of America in many, many ways, because so many of the paradoxes, so many of the dilemmas that exist in his life are in the country. So it's, I mean, he's interesting, but his connection, the way he um, personifies so much of the conflict that we have is even more interesting.
1: Mm -hmm. And Titus, um, you collapse timelines on canvas. I wanna just read some words Uh, of yours about your work. Um, I paint and I sculpt, often borrowing from the historical canon, and then alter the work in some way. I cut, crumple, shroud, shred, stitch, tar, twist, bind, erase, break, tear, and turn the paintings and sculptures I create, reconfiguring them into works that nod to hidden narratives and begin to reveal unspoken truths about the nature of history. And you grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I wonder how do you trace, like, what planted this fearlessness and creativity with which you attend to history on behalf of all the rest of us?
2: Well, I started painting really late. Um, I had already sort of constructed my ideas about the world. I was about twenty-seven when I when I made my first painting. Really and I was taking an art history class and in this art history class it was one of those survey classes where you try to teach way too much in a semester so you start with cave paintings and then with de Kooning <laughs> um, so in that class when I when I looked at the textbook at the beginning of the semester I looked in the book and there were about 14 or so pages on black people in painting now it didn't seem like much it wasn't much and the book that was like 400 pages. Um, it seemed strange to me, but I remember thinking, at least it's here. Now, it included every time a black person was represented in a painting that they thought was significant. So it
1: wasn't even just black painters? It no. was black? Wow.
2: No, it was, just, it was just in general. Yeah. And so I sat through that class, um, and, I, and I did well in the class and really enjoyed the professor in that class. But uh, when we got to that section, the day of class when we got to that section, uh, the professor went to the cl- uh, front of the classroom and, and said that uh, we don't have time to go through this section, so we're going to, we're going to skip over it. And I was the only uh, African-American in the class, and I raised my hand, and I said, uh, I've been really looking forward to this. And clearly, the author thought it was significant, so maybe we could figure something out. She said, Titus, I don't have time for this. We're not going to go through this. Um, and it became very clear to me that if I wanted to know that history, I was going to have to seek it out on my own. I had to sort of manipulate what I had and work with what I had to create a narrative that I didn't see or hear.
1: Mm. Is that when you started painting? When
2: you—that's, st- I mean, I think people would say that's when the work got political.
1: Yeah,
2: I say that's when the work got personal.
1: Mm. Annette, you wrote—you um, wrote this really interesting and. Um, Hopeful but also also reality-based article <laughs> in 2008 after the election of Barack Obama.: mm-hmm. One of the things you pointed out was that um, for you, the Obama candidacy, um, as you said, was a bet that the conventional wisdom about what we knew of white Americans was faulty or incomplete, mm-hmm. and that you also had that experience when you wrote this book mm-hmm. with this revelation about our founding father. Mm-hmm. Um, that you expected there to be huge resistance to this idea mm-hmm. of the relationship with t- between Thomas Jefferson and his slaves. And that's that's not what you encountered. So your, your imagination started to expand as well at that point.
0: Yes, yes, I expected resistance. I think most people, many people in, in, in the United States, had believed that the story was true. The real opposition had been among historians <laughs> who did not like the story, because if you if you have a man and so suddenly give him a, a person that he's lived with for 38 years and four kids, that changes the narrative of his life and that means you have to deal with it. Yeah. You can't just, they can't just be side characters. They have to be part of the story. And so there was real resistance to that.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I went to Virginia and I'd give talks in Virginia and I'd be sort of, oh God, what is it going to be like? I'm in Richmond, I'm in Fredericksburg or whatever. And people sometimes would come up to me with their own stories. Whites would come up to me with their own stories about their families that had Mm. been hidden, things that they didn't talk about. Um, So Southerners
1: knew this. Right, because as you say, this was an American life. This
0: is an American life, and that kind of thing happened in the South. And it's pretty clear that it did, and most Southerners understood it. But it's the kind of thing that you know but you don't talk about families have secrets, Mm -hmm. communities have secrets, and they whisper it, but they don't talk about it, even though it's apparent in the faces of African-American people who are all different colors, different hair textures, and so forth. It's always been there, but it's always some phantom, you know, traveling salesman or phantom person who came to visit (laughs) one time. It was never anybody that anyone cared about. It had to be somebody who was off and you wouldn't have to write about And so the reckoning was actually saying slavery was not just about making people work um, for no money. Slavery created a mingled bloodline between African-Americans and whites, and acknowledged and unacknowledged. But that shows the complexity of the tragedy in all aspects of the institution.
1: Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with the historian Annette Gordon-Reed, together with the artist Titus Kaphar. I mean, you also wrote in that same article, and I, I feel like this is something that people on all sides of the political spectrum, were able to celebrate and acknowledge that 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 election of a black president mm-hmm. was just this magnificent moment. Mm-hmm. It was a stunning moment, mm-hmm. and it said something. Yes. Um, and then, but you also said racism is no easy foe. Mm-hmm. You know, I've wondered if um, what the election of Barack Obama did—if it was not inevitable that at, at one and the same time this remarkable thing would have in, happen, given our history. Mm-hmm that also it would surface all the unfinished business Mm -hmm. in our midst for us to really meet that, to be worthy of that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, you know, Titus, you, um, well, your work has covered so many subjects over the last years, but many people know the painting that you did after Ferguson. And, of course, also in these years, this phenomenon of violence, towards black men and women, especially, you know, and and Michael Brown. And I mean, you know, we now have this list. But it it is a similar phenomenon to what you described. And I mean, this this had been happening in our midst all along, even as we patted ourselves on the back through Democratic presidencies and Republican presidencies, with white presidents and with a black president. Um, And it's kind of the iPhone that, as much as anything else, brought it to our attention. but it's also something you would lived with, and you've, and Annette, you've lived with, right? And we weren't naming it.
2: No, I mean, it. In the black community, it's not. Everyone, that was not a shock. That was not a surprise. Yeah. Everybody knew that. I mean, um, I've been stopped at gunpoint by police officers when Bush was president. <laughs> I was stopped at gunpoint when Obama was president. Um, you know, going back to personal versus political, I. When time asked me to make that painting, I wasn't making, I was already working on a painting because I had just had an experience with my brother in New York. I was adopted when I was 15, um, but I still am very, very much in contact with my family. And uh, my mother had sent my brother to stay with me for a little bit because he was getting into trouble um, back in Michigan. And uh, I was supposed to do my elderly brother duty and talk to him about how he was getting in trouble and how we needed to stay out of trouble, um, it's not a good time to be dealing with police. Uh, it's, it's prison now, you know. It's not juvenile hall. Um, and uh, my brother and I didn't have a whole lot in common at first. Started talking. Day one, I, it was very clear to me that he was deeply interested in shoes and women. And that was, <laughs> that was it. And the, the extent of wow. our conversation was very limited as a result of that. Um, day two... Um, <laughs> Less women, more shoes. Um, And day three, something happened. Um, The conversation opened up a little bit. And uh, we started talking about things, and he started opening up a little bit. And he finally said to me, he said, hey, why don't we go see some of your artwork in New York? And I was shocked. He's never really talked about wanting to see my work or anything like that. I said, no problem. Took him to New York, and I expected that we were going to be looking at galleries for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then we would move on. Um, and go get shoes. I thought that's, <laughs> I thought that's what was gonna happen. Um, but we ended up going in and out of galleries for two hours, and he was just so excited about the artwork, stuff that, that was really conceptual and stuff that I thought, this is too heavy for him, he's not gonna like it, but he was deeply engaged by it. And so as we left those galleries after this two hours of walking.
1: And so what year is this? Is this just a couple of years ago, right? It was just a
2: couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, after we left the galleries, Um, I said, this is my opportunity to talk to him. So we're walking um, down uh, 10th Avenue between 26th and 27th Street in New York, and I'm saying to him, listen, mom is very concerned about all the things that you're getting yourself involved in. And literally, as I'm having that conversation, an undercover police car speeds up to us. Police officers jump out of the car with hands on their guns and tell us to get against the wall and start demanding my ID and all this other stuff. I say that to say, Everyone in my community already knew that was happening. Yeah, right. I wasn't making that painting because I was trying to make some point. The only way that I've found that works for me to really work through these issues is to get into the studio.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up in, a, in my hometown. It was very much known. There were many um, instances of, of people, you know, police officers harassing individuals. One teenage boy was arrested and went into the precinct and was killed, um, you know, allegedly attacked someone, and he was shot, and nobody, you know, ever figured out what was going on with that. I mean, I've, um, it's not as, it's different, even though I think African American women still have problems, certainly. Sandra Bland, those stories, uh, everybody knows. I was on a uh, part of our book tour with my co-author, and we were driving along one evening, and we were stopped, and um, it was not, not anything, you know, serious that was was done other than the officer asking me for my identification. I wasn't driving. He was driving. And I was just thinking about the fact that I felt so different because he's a white man. I mean, in first place, they asked for my ID. I doubt if I had been... His wife, a white woman, that he would they would have asked for my ID. I wasn't driving, but and I teach criminal procedure. This is the thing that I teach my students, and, I, and I, it was wonderful. I got to go back the next day. And say, guess what happened to me? You know, <laughs> I, I got stopped. Oh, actually, my my co-author got stopped. I stopped with him, and you know, the notion that I would feel if this if I had been with my husband, who was a black man, I would have been much more frightened. Right. Um, because I wouldn't have known what would have happened. I knew they weren't going to bother him. I mean, mm-hmm. he's there in his glasses and pullover sweater and a, and a tie. And if you <laughs> went to him and said, who is that? And they'd say, that's a professor. I mean, it was obvious what he was. <laughs> Not a drug dealer. But, you know, why were they asking me for my ID? Other than that, we were a racially in Congress couple. And, you know, and... Shoot a form, you know. I said, well, all right, this nighttime, you don't know what's gonna happen. And, but just this give is the twenty first century. You right? don't know what you don't know what's yeah. gonna happen. So I you know, I didn't have to give him my ID, but I did because I didn't want to cause any problems. But that's that's the only time I've ever been stopped. But you just think about um, the range of of how race implicates, you know, intrudes on every single thing that that mm-hmm. happens.
2: The thing that I don't think that we think enough about, I mean, cause the stop obviously, is disheartening, is demoralizing. We all get that. What I don't know that people understand is that when that's happening, you feel less like a citizen. Mm -hmm. You feel like this country is not yours, and that your rights are subject to somebody else's whims. That's the part that I think that we need to understand here today. That when when you make these sort of arbitrary stops, you are pulling folks outside of the conversation of our political structure more and more. And ultimately, they go, go, I don't want to be a part of your thing because it clearly has nothing to do with me. That's not what we want to do. That's not what we want to do. And if that was the only bad thing, that came out of that, that would be enough for us to just stop that practice.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it's, no one was killed that evening. But as I said, it made me think about my relationship um, as, as a woman married to a black man, feeling different. You know, who knows what would have happened? And I have a son who, you know, I've raised in New York, and I have those feelings too. Yeah. Uh, what, what happens? How, you know, what happens when people talk to you like, like you're an, a dog and you're talking to a young person. And you know that it's, it's provoking, um, but you don't feel like a citizen. And that's you know, what we've been grappling with since Jefferson's time. The, are African-American people part of the people? Right? Uh, are we actually citizens here? Malcolm X said, you know, well, if you're a citizen, why do you have to fight for your rights? I mean, a citizen either has rights or not. Why are you fighting for them?
1: And we're always in that position. And, you know, I'm curious about, about how you, as a historian, think about how you know how the narrative starts to shift, right? The na- narratives we prioritize mm-hmm. and how that changes. And one of the things you've you've talked about with the research you did with Jefferson and Hemings families is that, you know, as you said, this happened in the South. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew it. Everybody was part of it. But that was oral history, mm-hmm. and that wasn't the same as history. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like this, you know, as Terrible and shocking it is and that it continues to go on, this specter of violence and just what you're describing, people not feeling like citizens. Uh, we're also, I think, seeing this and naming this, not perfectly, not completely, but in a new way.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it, it's, it depends. We'll have to see what comes of it because we yeah. still haven't had, in the killings, in the shootings, indictments. I mean, people right. see it. Right. And we're shocked by it, and it's to a point where now it's almost, you know, you know, people are, there's sort of a backlash. I don't want to see anybody else get killed. I don't want to see this anymore. It's very hard to um, indict a police officer. Yeah, I mean, we understand that people are doing a job that lots of people don't want to do, and can be a dangerous job. And part of the way that people get paid to do that is to give them discretion and, and Judges and uh, law enforcement is given great amount of discretion, but there are so many instances you sort of wonder when people will actually. We're naming it and we're seeing it. Mm-hmm. What is the next mm-hmm. step to trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to deal with this problem, uh, how indeed. to to reconcile or reckon, however we want to put it. Um,
1: yeah, reckon and repair. Re- reckon yeah. and repair.
0: Yeah, uh, relations among. We have to. Have, we do have police officers. We need police officers. But we also need to have some sense that African-American people, a reality that African-American people are, in fact, citizens.
1: Yeah. Titus, you named something that I think is really important, um, and you talked about it in the context of your painting after Ferguson, which, I, was that called Yet Another Fight for Remembrance? Is that... Um, but the fight to remember when an issue disappears from the media and that when something disappears from the media that's, that's, sh- we should not all take that as permission to forget and you, you bring that into your, into your painting um, I would just talk a little bit about that how you inhabit this dynamic
2: M- my father has been in and out of prison for much of my life my cousin's are still incarcerated. One of my cousins died in prison. Um, The community I come from, this is not, I don't have to try to remember not to forget. Like it's just family. Um, When I wrote that, I was writing that for for those for whom there is that possibility because that's not where you're from. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: It may not be your world, but in this moment, there's been this compassion that I've seen from folks that I didn't necessarily see it from before, and I'm saying, please let's not let that go away. We need to keep that in, in the discourse. So it wasn't—it's not something that I feel like I need to work at, but I hope that as a whole, as a as a country, is something that we we hold on to. There's a lot of issues that we have to deal with right now. I mean, as we were going through the um, the consortium this afternoon. Just remembering all of the oppressed groups that are struggling with different things. It feels mm-hmm. sometimes it feels overwhelming, but I think it's necessary to remind ourselves um, until we take that all on and stop like dividing them and segregating them. And and you know, this is the American Indian problem over here, and this is the African American problem over here, right. and this is you know this is the immigration problem over here. Mm-hmm. Um, They're all definitely separate issues. But what was really amazing about today was everyone coming together and saying, "Okay, I can help with this. I can help with this. My organization does a completely different thing, but we can help in this way. I think that's when things really begin to change.
0: It's an amazing time. I mean, Du Bois said that the problem of the twentieth century would be the color line, but mm-hmm. we're still there mm-hmm. you know, in the twenty first century now it's at a global scale, yeah, stuff is happening. this is not just the ferment that we're talking about now is not just here, yeah. it's all over the world, and so the problems of work, problems of inequality. Um, the shifting alliances and so forth. It's a, it's a frightening time, but it's also a time that, you know, if we choose to be, it could be a hopeful time.
1: You know, I think also about how we, um, one of the people I've interviewed is um, Mazarin Banaji, who helped mm-hmm. create the science of implicit bias at yes. Harvard, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we did shift the color line in terms of laws, but we didn't, we had, there's a color line in our head, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're reckoning with now. And we didn't know that 50 years ago, the way we know it now. Mm-hmm. You know, Titus, when I look at that painting, um, The Myth of Benevolence.
2: Beneath. Hmm? Uh, beneath the Myth beneath, of
1: Beneath the Myth of Benevolence, which is, um, as you often do, it's one painting on top of another, and it's, it's Thomas Jefferson, right? But then the canvas is peeling away, and you see this image of a slave woman, and it's an intimate image. And in some ways, you could almost say that's a picture of implicit bias, right? But the contrast, you know, that we carry around who we are, who we present to the world, and who we believe ourselves to be and are in some way. And then also who we are.
2: This painting was made after a conversation with, um, and this is a couple of years ago, we were we were sitting down. And we were having a conversation, and she's a um, a school teacher. She was a school teacher for years, for like thirty years, and um, she taught history, AP history, and I love talking about history. And as we were sitting there talking about history, we sort of moved on to Jefferson, and I said, "Fascinating individual, fascinating individual," and she said. She said, Well, what do you mean? I said, Well, you know, the issues of slavery, but at the same time, this brilliant mind. Wow, just complex. And she said to me, Well, there was slavery, but he was a benevolent slave owner. And 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 I said, I I I, I, I don't know what you mean by that. And uh and she didn't she didn't respond to me. And and so I, I sort of followed up and I said, I've never won. I've never heard anyone called a benevolent rapist. I've never, I've never heard that before. I've never heard anyone called a benevolent kidnapper. Um, I don't know what you mean. Could you please just clarify it for me? She sat in silence for at least two or three minutes, and then that was the end of the conversation. And so I got up and I left. I went to the studio and had to do something, and this is what, what came out.
1: After a short break, more with Titus Kafar and Annette Gordon-Reed. This episode is part of On Being's Civil Conversations Project, an evolving adventure in audio, events, resources, and initiatives for planting relationship and conversation around the subjects we fight about intensely and those we've barely begun to discuss. To learn more, visit civilconversationsproject.org. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation harnessing the power of the sciences to
0: explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. In June, the Foundation approved $85 in new projects to accelerate discovery and inspire curiosity. Requests for funding will be accepted until August 16th. Learn more at templeton.org.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, reckoning with history in order to repair the present. I'm with historian Annette Gordon-Reed and painter Titus Kafar in a live event at the 2017 Citizen University National Conference in Seattle. Titus, you also tell a story about um, reading about George Washington and discovering the the agony that he felt Mm. about slavery and the questions that that raised for you and the kind of agony it raised for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was saying this before, we were talking before and I was just saying, I, I struggled academically in school. I was that kid that got kicked out all the time. I got kicked out of kindergarten, literally. <laughs> I, I, my GPA in high school was 0. 0.65. Um, and, and I was that kid. I was that kid. And when something clicked in my mind, I, 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 I literally felt it. something clicked in my mind, and I was able to see the world differently. Um, I was able to engage texts differently. Um, I felt obligated to start reading all the histories that I had ignored when I was supposed to be uh, paying attention in school. And so when I started making the work that I was making, I felt obligated to, to read more about you know, American history And I started at the beginning (laughs) with George Washington. And I had all of these preconceived notions. Some of them were right, but some of them were wrong. What I did not expect from the reading that I had done was how much writing, in how much writing he had made it clear that this was a huge problem and that he thought that this was going to devastate the country, and yet he felt like he could do nothing about it. That was the thing that was kind of surprising to me as I read through some different journal entries and things like that. Mm -hmm. It was clear that he knew that this was wrong. Clear, he knew it's wrong. Because there, there's this thing that we do where we try to say, well, it was a different time, and you can't really judge them based on like our morals of today. You can say that if you want to. Um, it was clear that they knew that there was a problem with what was happening. There was a lot of equivocation that had to go on. There was a lot of decisions that had to be, there were a lot of excuses, but that shocked me.
0: Yeah, and well, that was Jefferson too. Um, talking about some of the most eloquent statements against slavery, yeah. but not being interested. Actually, Jefferson was interested in something else. I mean, Jefferson was interested in the United States. I mean, he helped start a country, and that is what he focused on. I mean, we under, we sort of know that it actually was going to work, <laughs> to a point. Um, and he didn't think at the time, it wasn't clear that it was going to. So he focused all of his attention on that. We look back and we're interested in, rightly, I think, in race and slavery, but that was not his preoccupation. I mean, he Mm -hmm. knew slavery was wrong and he said that. But what he basically was obsessed about uh, was the United States of America. But
1: I think that that, you know, the question of, Well, what? So, George, if you had done something, Mm -hmm. right? Mm I or, think George or,
0: Washington. I mean, people castigate Jefferson, but the person who had who had the most moral capital, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the person who mm-hmm. could have there were always people who hated Jefferson. Mm-hmm. So he was not a universally beloved figure. Mm-hmm. Washington, for the most part, was. If he had said something, mm-hmm. I think he would he could have had the most influence if mm-hmm. he'd spoken out. And in fact, um, one of Jefferson's secretaries, who after when Washington died, and Washington did free his slaves, uh, they were supposed to be freed upon Martha's death. Uh, and this person was somewhat critical of him. He said, you know, if he had done something when he was alive, that's the time uh, to have done something. I am mean, glad that he freed the slaves, but those, in, the enslaved people but um, who were at Mount Vernon, but a president, a person with that moral capital, if he had spoken out, would have made, I think, a huge difference. Although, you know, I don't know that it would have made the Virginians, you know, give up their slaves right away, but I think it could have... And they could have made a difference.
1: So, nobody in this room um, has the social capital that George Washington had then, no. and and it's and I don't I don't actually think any individual ever again will be able no, to have don't. right. We we don't have these kinds of generally universally respected places where everybody is looking and seeing yeah. authority. Um, uh, but an implication of that. Uh, you know, actually this is, you know, this could be the dream of democracy, right? That it, it, it's back to, to each of us in our lives. And I, I wonder what each of you would want each of us to ask uh, of ourselves. Um, what I would like to see people do, and
0: I think particularly white people t- to do, would be to challenge one another on this question of white supremacy mm-hmm. and racism. I mean, black people can't and should not have to convince white people that we are human beings who have a right to be on the Earth. Um, that's, that is something. It's, the only time we've made progress is when whites, a critical mass of whites, say, you know, enough of this. Whatever it is I'm getting out of going along, I, I can't. And people have done that. William Lloyd Garrison did it. Uh, through the years, you've had people who did that. I would like to see more whites do that because it's it's demeaning. It's it's not right for people to have to, to make the case that we are humans. And to the extent that your family members don't seem to know that or your friends don't seem to know that, I think that's something that that's a conversation that has to take place among whites. Um, and And it it has happened, it does happen, and and we have made progress, but it should happen more.
2: I just want to piggyback on that for just a second. I think when, when you say we shouldn't have to prove that we are human, I think there's probably people out here who probably think that that's a form of hyperbole. Probably think there's no way in the world she actually thinks that there are people who do not believe that black people are human let's not think about it in those direct terms for for just a second let's think about like what happens to black people so you may say of course black people are people i just said people didn't i <laughs> but like when you think about what is going on and 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 again i don't i don't even i don't even want this is something I want to work on. I don't even want to talk, talk about it in, in that frame because it's not just black people. It's, it's not just black people. Mm-hmm, there are mm-hmm. so many people who are treated as though they are not humans. I mean, like for, let's forget about black people for just a minute, just a second, and talk about undocumented people in this country. Like, talk about not treat, being treated like they're, they're humans. Let's, let's talk about indigenous people. Let's, not being treated like they're, <laughs> treating like they're not humans. So, so you, I just want people to know that that's not hyperbole. Like, forget about what people say. Let's talk about what their actions are and judge them based on those actions. And based on those actions, there are people who are still questioning that fact.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with painter Titus Kafar, together with historian Annette Gordon-Reed. I don't know if this fits, but Titus, you've got this project, the the Vesper project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I don't, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna raise it, and if it's if it's a dead end, But it somehow it seems to me so. This is a person, Benjamin Vesper. Is he white?
2: That's a very good question.
1: <laughs> you don't know. I didn't say that. Yeah, no, no, I just wondered. <laughs> okay. But that he, he became obsessed with your painting and, atta- and, and attacked and was destructive. Um, but it seems to me that you hospitably engaged his psychosis. That, is that fair? Would you say that? That is fair. Okay. <laughs> um, and I mean, speaking of the other, and I mean, it is a psychosis, right? This is when our brains are, are in... Primal mode, lizard mode. Um, I mean, you, there was this. There's something he wrote to you. He corresponded with you, and he, there's something he wrote to you, um, talking about. The, he says, "Then I'm the painting I'm looking at." He's talking about your painting. Reaches out and takes hold of me, like the day the Indian Ocean woke up and decided to claim several thousand souls. I realize now that it was a trap. The lure was well placed, just around a corner, so I couldn't see it coming. Maybe it called to me. I can't see for sure now. But once I was in front of it, I felt so alone. Somehow I feel like that, just this exchange and then also what you did with it is a bit of a model. And it's very messy. The whole thing is messy.
2: My work has always been about narrative, about stories and conversations with people. And I... I really feel obligated, I don't know why, but I, I really do feel obligated to have conversa- to be that guy that's willing to have conversations with people who I know don't like me. That's just my thing, I just, I, I just do. Um, and it's hard sometimes, it's really painful sometimes. It's been more, usually it's hard, like recently it's been painful, it's been really painful, surprised at the things I've been hearing, but... Um, I feel like if I can figure that out a little bit, I was talking saying this a little bit earlier, if I can figure that out, if I can sit with an individual who, who feels very differently about the world than I feel, mm-hmm. and I can get to some place, get any place, that I will have touched on a piece of the solution that we're all looking for in the country. And so that's that's sort of like my motivation for putting myself through this, this crucible over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the the same with that.
0: I have a friend who is always exasperated with me when I answer emails from people like that, because I have (laughs) the same kind of urge to do that, to actually, and and not all the time, but sometimes we actually do get to a point where the person will begin to back down and will begin to open up. And even though that's just one individual, it's, I see that as something of a victory in a way, mm-hmm. uh, rather than just totally turning off and not. I mean, some people are so nasty, I don't, I don't do that. But um, if, you ha- if I have any sense that the person is questioning, because a lot, of it, a lot of times people write to you or they're like that and they're kind of lost. I mean, and, and they're, they're disturbed by something. And they, they present themselves as being very, very clear and, you know, right. set, but they're really not. They're really questing in a way and, and a conversation that you can have with them. Um, you may not come to a total agreement, but they're in a different place. And that's kind of why I wanted to write, because I wanted to be able to reach people mm-hmm. and those, reach those kinds of people as well. Not just the people who are saying, oh, you're great, you're great. Everything you're doing is wonderful. Um, but people who are questing in that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where do people who mean well go wrong?
0: <laughs> Let me count the ways. I mean, what? what? I, look. We all mean well. There's,
2: there's, there's a lot of ways to go wrong attempting to mean well, but it's better to go wrong attempting to mean well than go wrong not attempting at all. Mm. So, like, I have compassion for that, right? Like, um, <laughs> it happens all the time. People ask these questions, and you're like, wow, okay, all right. Um, let's sit down. We'll have this conversation. Um, I was sitting down, for example, with someone who, who believes very differently uh, from me about welfare, and we were talking about welfare, and, um, and they were just railing on welfare and how no one in this country should have welfare, and it's a waste of money, and this and this and that, and I said... Yeah, my mother was 15 when I was born. If we didn't have welfare, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. And I realized in that moment I was the only person, the only person that this individual had ever had a conversation mm-hmm. with who was actually on the other end of their critique. And they, they, they actually stopped and said, I, I, really, you? And I said, yeah, yeah. So I have a lot of compassion for going wrong, um, but let's just try
1: You you know, you you got too many. Your list is too long.
0: Oh, what do people <laughs> go? What,
1: um, people go wrong?
0: I think in not well in, in my area, and um, not. I think well, very often seeing people like Jefferson as um, a god, in a way, um, somebody who was not, who was superhuman. Um, on both sides. I'm not just talking about people, people who revile a Jefferson or people who love Jefferson are not dealing with a a human being, dealing with an abstraction and don't see uh, the foibles and the frailties of a person who was was human. And so I think people go wrong uh, on both ends um, by not recognizing the humanity. As a historian, history is not just about, you know, writing about People that you like. (laughs) Uh, It's about people who were important, who did important things, and to try to illuminate their lives in a way that makes that plain to to readers. You know, why is this person important? I mean, you know, all the different roles he played um, during this time period. And to see the strengths, but also to see the vulnerabilities. As an African American person, people say, well, how can you write about this this figure with any degree of sympathy or whatever, yeah. but first place there's the fact that he, he lived a very very long time ago, so there's there's distance. Um, but it's not, as I said, about your personal feelings about it. It's about the importance. This is someone who uh, was at the center of American life, who who you know crafted words that are we consider to be our creed, American creed. Right, and whether right, right. you know he was whether he failed or not. That is something that was put there, that every group of people who tries to make a place for themselves in the United States in American life, that they use it. And flaws and all, that is important. So I think not seeing the humanity, not um, making the person larger than life, ex-superhuman or evil incarnate is not the way to go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In general, I think. (laughs) Um, So, Annette, here's something you wrote. The chief value of of having read lots and lots of biographies (laughs) and having seen multiple families in action in them is that whenever anyone insists that a particular thing could not have happened or a given situation could not have obtained in any domestic setting, I can think of half a dozen instances where that very thing or something akin to it or something even more bizarre happened in a family. (laughs) And I'm thinking about the American family too, right? Mm -hmm. So, does this also work for good turns? Could we surprise and outdo ourselves by the way we walk through this moment we inhabit? Oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. I I do think that there will be um, alliances formed that you could not have imagined. Would be formed, and that think, might not
1: have had their felt their reasons. To might, form. might not have felt their yeah. reasons
0: to do it. Uh, it's just a, it's a very very up in the air moment, and um, I, d- I don't think it's it's a re- it's reason for exasperation in many ways. Um, it, it's a reason for uncertainty because it's a it's a new thing. We've never done this. As I said, we've never we've never had a president like this. Uh, a person who. Is not a part of a really a part of a party, a part of a system who've been mm-hmm. through all of this. So it's new territory that we're in, and I I think we can surprise ourselves. I mean, mm-hmm. this is it's a big country, a lot of talented people, uh, and I think a lot of people of goodwill. It's easy to focus on the negative. Yeah. But I do think it's I I think that there's a reason to be hopeful about it.
1: And all the social fracture that we're dealing with would have been there. The day oh, yeah. after the election, whoever had won. Oh, right? whoever won. Yeah, and it, I mean, it came, it was that whole year that brought it, and the years since. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we surprise ourselves?
2: Absolutely. So um, I went to this, this uh, Creative Capital event, and at the event I gave a talk. And uh, after, the talk, after I gave a talk, I watched uh, Castles Heather, transgender artist who is, if you don't know the work, you just need to look it up. Castles came and sat with me at the table and we started talking. And I was talking about um, issues of incarceration. And Castles was talking about the number of transgender women who were killed at the beginning of that year. Mm-hmm. And, and we were just like going back and forth and going back and forth about stuff. And we decided, you know, we need to work together. We need to, we need to make a project together and figure out this. This is what I'm gonna do. I want you, I want you to teach me through your content, and I'm going to teach you through my content. And then we're going to produce an exhibition together. And Castles is my dear, dear friend now. And it has completely opened my eyes again to this thing I was saying before about not dividing us up in this way, but sort of bringing us together and say, let's let's, let's sol- solve the whole problem. Let's try to solve the whole thing at once, see what we can do.
1: Yeah. This is another way that we are very strange as creatures, isn't it? That a crisis also becomes this moment of it opens possibility, generative possibilities that weren't there before as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: Well, Annette Gordon-Reed, Titus Kafar, thank you so much. And thank you for what you do in the world. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Charles Warren Professor of American Legal History at Harvard Law School and a professor of history in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. Her books include the Pulitzer Prize winning, The Hemingses of Monticello, An American Family, and Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson, and the Empire of the Imagination. Titus Kafar lives and works in New Haven, Connecticut, and has received numerous awards, including the Artist as Activist Fellow from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation and the 2018 Rappaport Prize. Special thanks this week to Citizen University founder Eric Liu, also to Janae Kane, Ben Phillips, Sasha Summer Cousineau, Taylor Roden, Carrie Wakely, Tom Stiles, and all the great people at Citizen University. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Erin Colasacco, Kristen Lin,
2: Profit, Idowu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee,
1: Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon,
2: Zack Rose, and Siri Grassley.
1: The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
2: On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.